Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Some audio in this episode may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. You can't take off with people's children without expecting a violent reaction. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. The Jonestown Massacre is the largest mass suicide that has ever occurred in American history. Why did Jim Jones, leader of the People's Temple, order the killings of over 900 people in Guyana, South America? What brought us to this horrific event? Why did the members follow him there? Who was Jim Jones? To go even deeper, Watch the four-part docuseries Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle, currently streaming on Sundance Now. Download the app or visit SundanceNow.com and start watching. Welcome to The Truth About True Crime, a podcast series looking at some of the most shocking crimes of our lifetimes through a whole new lens. We'll take a deeper look at the perpetrators, the victims, and the media sensationalism that swirled around them. I'm Amanda Knox, your host. I spent four years in prison for a crime I didn't commit, My name was slandered in the courtroom and in the media, and to this day, I'm called a killer online. It's given me a unique perspective on the justice system and how easy it is for the truth to be lost in a flood of media. For the next seven episodes, we're going to explore the tragic events of the Jonestown Massacre and its charismatic leader who started it all, Jim Jones. In 1978, the Jonestown Massacre left over 900 people dead in what is remembered as the largest mass suicide in American history. It shocked the country, and its ripple effects are still felt today. But have the events at Jonestown been distorted by time, the media, and our own desires to distance ourselves from the people who committed these acts? Was it actually a suicide? The victims, both adults and children, are often misrepresented as gullible cult members who followed some megalomaniac to their deaths. The survivors of Jonestown are still haunted 40 years later as they continue to be judged by the public and the media. 
please take this journey with me beyond the sensational headlines and the snap judgments of bystanders and tabloids as we explore the truth about the victims of the Jonestown Massacre, its cult leader, and the twists and turns that led so many people to knowingly drink the Kool-Aid. Although, it wasn't actually Kool-Aid. It was a cheap knockoff called Flavor-Aid. Even the smallest details are more complicated than you think. Following the Jonestown Massacre, the FBI recovered around 1,000 audio tapes made by Jim Jones and the People's Temple. In this podcast, you'll be hearing clips from those tapes from as far back as Jones's time in Indiana, where he grew up, all the way up to the infamous death tape, which was recorded on the day of the tragedy. In this episode, we'll be taking a look into what created Jim Jones, the man we know as the leader of the People's Temple who ordered the killings of over 900 people. Here with me today via Skype, we have Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown and executive producer of the docuseries Jonestown Terror in the Jungle. On the phone, we have Ron Haldeman, minister and former mentor to Jim Jones, and Phyllis Zimmerman, childhood friend of Jim Jones. So I wanted to go back to Lynn, Indiana, Jeff, can you tell me a little bit about your research, looking into what life was like in Lynn? There were about 850 people living there when Jim Jones was growing up. It was a little rail town in the middle of a farm community in rural Indiana. Looking at a childhood of a little town in Indiana, The moment I think of it, a great deal of pain comes. He had a relatively difficult upbringing. Part of that was because his mother was so strange. She believed in predestination and in reincarnation. And from the time Jimmy is toddling, she's telling him that he was born to be the greatest man on earth that will have an effect on a child. I was able to meet and talk to Jeannie Jones Luther, Jim Jones's first cousin who grew up with Jim in Lynn, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I asked her what her cousin was like as a boy, you know, was he a typical Lynn kid? And she looked at me almost with a disgusted look and said, no. I said, can you give me an example? World War II, Jimmy's still a school kid. And all the the schoolboys in Lynn during recess want to play soldier games, battle. And of course, they're all the allied soldiers. You know, I'm Audie Murphy, you know, I'm General Patton. Jim, was fascinated by Hitler and the Nazis. And he would talk all the time, you know, Jeannie heard him do it many times, apparently, about how he was amazed at Hitler being able to get up in front of these huge audiences and get all this attention. He was so fascinated by Hitler's soldiers that he made his younger cousins, he took them out in the field and made them practice goose stepping marching and when they didn't want to do it he had a switch and he'd smack them in the calves and he got in trouble with their mothers for that but at the end of the war jimmy was so fascinated by how with all his enemies closing in 
Hitler committed suicide and denied them the pleasure of capturing him and putting him on trial. Sound familiar? Whoa. So obviously that's eerily similar to what Jim did in the end. But let's go back to Lynn for a second. Was there anything about the town that enabled this kind of thinking? The two most outstanding things about Lynn, first were its churches. Not even 900 people, yet there were five churches in town. Jim Jones, starting at age five, began joining all of them and participating in all the different types of services. Some Sundays he'd spend 10 minutes in one service and race out to catch another 15 minutes in another one. Because I was never accepted, or I didn't feel accepted, I joined a Pentecostal church, the most extreme Pentecostal church, the Oneness, because they were the most despised. They were the rejects of the community. I uh, found immediate acceptance and I must say, in all honesty, as much love as I could interpret love. He always was fascinated by the ceremonies of religion. I mean, he would get caught up in it all, but he would be carefully studying what the various ministers were doing. Hmm. And the other thing in Lynn, which surprising for the time. In those days, public education in Indiana was uh, pretty basic. But Lynn, it was one of the best public school systems in the entire state. And by the time you got to high school, you could be studying languages, advanced mathematics. So you have a community that's both very conservative in its religion, its political views, very quiet, and yet it's got a school system where the kids are encouraged to use their imaginations and dream big. Does that sound about right, Phyllis? Yes, uh, and Jim was a good student. He was smart, and he did well in school. There were lots of wild tales about stuff that he did at his house that you heard about from the boys, but he didn't do crazy stuff at school. He was well-behaved, and he was very polite. But after some time, intellectually, I outgrew Pentecostalism, but still a rebel, still not a part of the society, never accepted, born, as it were, on the wrong side of the tracks. What stories about Jim did you hear from the other boys at school? My brother used to tell a story about him. There was a kind of a barn or garage on the property, and they were climbing around on the rafters in that barn, and they were getting a little nervous about it, and when they wanted to get down, Jim blocked their way, and he said something like a the angel of death has got me, has a hold of me. And they, you know, he was really scaring them and freaking them out. The idea in Lynn for the children is that everybody should kind of fit in and be like everybody else. Jim was the only one that that didn't hold true for. Some of the old men I've talked to that, that grew up with him remember, first of all, 
the religious ceremonies that he would like to hold for dead animals that they found along the road. He'd want everyone to gather around. He'd preach a sermon. In the summer when he was 15, Jim Jones organized a baseball league. Jim went from town to town, organized the team, signed up the sponsors for the teams, organized the games. That was the only time anybody ever remembers him participating in organized sports because he got to be the boss and tell everybody what to do. Phyllis, you went to school with Jim, but did you know him in any other way? I guess he was sort of my boyfriend when we were um, freshmen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but this didn't amount to anything very sophisticated. We went to something called Christian Endeavor at the church on Sunday evenings. And Jim Jones also attended this. After the program, the boys would walk us home. Jim would walk me home. I heard there's a story about rings that he tried to give you. He had a cheap little ring on his finger, or a couple of cheap little rings on his fingers, and he tried to get me to wear them, but it was not an offer that was very appealing. He apologized for not being able to offer me his class ring. There's another story connected with that. But he had these cheap little rings, and he said, why don't you wear them? He says, I, I, don't, I don't really want to wear them that much. Why don't you wear them? They, they weren't particularly attractive rings, and that wasn't the reason, from my point of view, for me to wear them. He didn't say, you know, you're my girl, I want you to wear these rings. He said, why don't you wear them? Why couldn't he give you his class ring? His class ring was not available because he had gotten carried away at a revival meeting. And when the preacher was talking about vanity and baubles and things like that, he took off his class ring and threw it out the window. So I think when he went, he was sort of all in. Or at least that's what the class ring suggested, that, you know, he's, he's listening to the minister and the minister causes him to throw his ring out the window. But as I grew, I'd early developed a sensitivity for the problems of blacks, too probably feeling as an outcast. I left my father's home early and had to go to work and live away from the home because I brought the only black young man in the town home to visit my dad and and my dad said that he could not come in. I said, then I shan't. And I did not see my dad for many years or for some, some time thereafter, leaving the town, going to work at a very young age in a hospital. When Jim was thinking what he wanted to do with his life, someone remembers him saying he went back to talk to Phyllis because he respected her opinion and wanted to know if she thought he should become a minister or a doctor. Uh, Well, I did have a conversation with him. I don't recall him asking my advice. It was more a question of talking to an old friend and saying, this is where I am right now. I'm interested in being a minister. I'm interested in being a hospital administrator. And I haven't yet decided which one. So I consciously made a decision to look into that prospect. It really was brought to my attention by a very kindly 
a man who had a great deal of conscience that seemed to be compatible to my views, who was a church administrator of a denomination, and he encouraged me to think about being a pastor, and so I did, and very quickly did. I'd had my religious heritage and Pentecostalism, deep-rooted emotions in the Christian tradition, and I deep love which I share to this day for the practical teachings of Jesus Christ it's always been a sort of dual concept a doubter and yet a believer Jesus Christ to use a kid's phrase greatly turned me on so Ron how did you come to mentor him in that regard well, he arrived at my office, and I was running a Friends Inner City project. He uh, said he had been a member of the Friends Church in the land, and I expect he had, because <laughs> he'd been a member of all the churches. But he uh, wanted to help me in my work, and about a month later asked me if I could help him get to be an official congregation because he had managed to uh, grow from maybe 10 people at the first service to uh, 300 uh, within a month by uh, having revival services in the parking lot of the Kroger's that was around the corner. And I was amazed that the Kroger's were happy to have him do it and that so many people got involved so quickly. What did he say to you about racial injustice. Did you guys talk about it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We both were very uh, active in that area, and he felt you should not discriminate against anybody for any purpose, and still you could find drinking fountains for whites only, and the movie theaters when he started his church had African Americans in the balcony only, and it really was something that bothered him quite a bit. And when he went to work for the city, he spent city money to integrate both movie theaters and restaurants. For everything that he did later, it's important to re remember that Jim Jones accomplished amazing things in Indianapolis. Reverend Haldeman correctly points out that Jim integrated movie theaters, grocery stores, restaurants, and even a hospital when he was taken to the hospital himself for emergency surgery. He refused to go under the anesthesia, that he would die right there if the hospital didn't integrate immediately. And they, they started moving black patients into white rooms. And that happened. What he did in Indianapolis, and again, with the help of people like his wife, Marceline and Reverend Haldeman, who was his good supportive friend. It, it's mind-boggling when you think about it. Ron, do you think that the good that someone does can be wiped out or erased by the bad things that they do? I don't think he did bad things. I don't think the event at Guiana really was his fault and was really an unexpected event. And at the time it happened, there was no place else 
for Jim to go but to suicide because of what had happened and he felt it was time to go home. I hear what you're saying, Ron. I also think that a lot of people who are listening are going to push back against that idea because it takes away from Jim Jones his responsibility for what happened. I can sympathize with that position. I spent four years locked in a room with people who had done terrible things. And if there's anything I learned from that experience is that even people who have done terrible things are people and they're doing the best they can a lot of the time. You know, there's this hero of mine named Brian Stevenson, who's this big anti-death penalty advocate. And he said something that has always stayed with me. It's that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I think that's a powerful statement because in society, we tend to label someone according to the best thing that they've ever done or the worst thing that they've ever done so that we can either decide to celebrate them or despise them. And I think that black and white nature of characterizing people in the world is not truthful. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we're not responsible for the things that we do. This idea that there's this gray space, that we've all done good and bad things, means that all of those things, including the bad things that we've done, are a part of us. And so it also means that it's never too late to start making better choices, because we're not defined by the worst thing we've ever done. So I guess my question for you, Ron, is if you had been there in Guyana with Jim Jones, if you could have had his ear, what would you have said to him? What advice would you give him? I would have tried to get him to immediately disappear with as much of his congregation as possible because of what had happened. So when people paint Jones as an evil man, do you think that that's not fair, that that's too simple? I think that that's not fair. If you look at all that he did, all of his attempts at doing things, I think that if Guyana had not have happened, we would have quite a flourishing community in Guyana now. I think that it would have succeeded quite well and grown quite large. Do you also think that maybe it was a product of the time? Do you think that if he were doing this experiment today that it would have ended differently? I don't really think so. I think that it may have been more of a a product of its time, but it would have been as successful uh, with a good leader in almost any age. I see. And I wanted to ask Phyllis, do you remember when you first heard the news about Jonestown? Do you remember that day? I'm not sure that I remember the specific day. I do remember hearing about it in uh, news stories. And I hadn't, um, I hadn't really thought about him or heard about what he was doing that recently. I think pretty much the last time I had really been aware of what he was doing was about the time that he left Indianapolis. So it, it was just, I remember that it was a very shocking thing. How did you feel? Uh, 
I don't know. I I was um, amazed, I guess, uh, shocked. Uh, you know, it was a horrific thing, and I was embarrassed because not only were, was the the horrific um, fact of all these people who had died, but um, but there were all sorts of shocking things having to do with sex and so forth that was in the public at that point in time. And, and I, re- I remember that, that I was, um, I didn't tell anybody that I knew Jim Jones because I was really, I was really ashamed so I wouldn't, I wouldn't have volunteered the knowledge that I was a childhood friend of his at that point in time. I didn't want anybody to know that I'd ever had anything to do with this guy. One of the reasons I'm telling my story is because I certainly don't feel any inclination as a writer. Great writers have written, and the words have been forgotten too soon with their departure, or if even remembered at any time, whether they were alive or dead. So uh, my main purpose of writing is that to help protect my people, because I really have a strong desire to die. I would not want to do anything but give the absolute honesty of my soul. To my guests, Jeff, Ron, and Phyllis, thank you so much for taking your time to be here. Thank you to everyone else for listening, and make sure to tune in to the next episode, where you'll hear from Jordan Vilches, a former member of People's Temple, and Jim Jones Jr., the adopted son of Jim Jones, about the beginnings of the People's Temple and how Jones built his rainbow family. When I joined, I went from living relatively simply to going into this big extended family. He facilitated 913 deaths. But why? Somebody ought to told you before you came in here that this is not an ordinary church. This is different. Find the truth about true crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.